everybody. Before we get started with the episode proper, a quick warning. There are lots of naughty words contained in this episode of the Mild-Mannered Army, some taken from uh, 18 and 15 certificate-rated films. So if you have children in the car or people of a sensitive disposition, you may want to listen to this one on your own. Thanks. There's Ted's with drainpipe trousers and dips in coffee asses and things ain't what they used to be. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Mild Mannered Army podcast with me, Mild Mannered Max. Thank you for being here at Mild Mannered Towers, where I'm about to be joined by author, journalist and film critic Matt Glasby. Matt has written a book entitled Britpop Cinema. From train spotting to This Is England. The book details the resurgence, the renaissance that took place in British cinema during the 90s. A story that is much in common with what was going on in all other areas of British popular culture at that time, including, of course, the music scene. The book itself is published on Intellect, and I really would recommend that you order yourself a copy. It's full of fascinating stories and incredible insights into some of the films that helped shape the 90s. Here then is my chat with Matt. to you Matt. Hello Paul, how's it going? Yes, very, very well. So we should forewarn people that you and I have had a little bit of a conversation via email about some of the films that, that feature in the book um, and there will be tension uh, throughout our conversation until we get one particular film out of the way. But before we get into that, could you maybe <laughs> give us a, a little bit of background Matt about where the book has come from why this book and why now yeah sure i mean that's that's a reasonably big question but let's let's give it a crack um around the time about that say maybe a year before train spotting 2 came out i thought it'd be a really good idea to look back at the original film and then in doing so i looked in looking back it struck me that it was kind of a golden age for a certain kind of british cinema which i've called britpop cinema which we can explain later and that I thought I would write a book on this and it would come out in time for train spotting too. But uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, to my, in, in fairness, train spotting too was also late. It was like 21 years after train spotting or something. And books take a while. So here we are with it being released quite a long time after train spotting too. But you know, we're looking back at an era that I think a lot of people have affection for. I mean, obviously, hence why we're talking. And so that sense, you know, is never going to be completely out of fashion. It's coming up to 25 years of Britpop, all that stuff. So actually, it turns out the timing's perfect. Yeah, I would agree with that, Matt. I, th- I think the timing is perfect. And I, I like the fact that the book is called Britpop Cinema and, and not British Cinema of the 90s or whatever it might be. Because I think the thing that a lot of people who look back with a slightly sniffy attitude towards Britpop, certainly the music of Britpop, forget is that it wasn't a label that only applied to Thurman and menswear. 
Yeah. You know, it, it did apply to Oswald Boateng. It, it did apply to film. It did apply to culture. And I, I guess in some ways it applied to the political landscape as well. Um, it's an all-encompassing term. So I, I think it's great that you've taken that title um, and have that approach to it. Well, if you, I mean, if you're looking for an all-encompassing thing for that amazing period, it's either Britpop cinema or it's something to do with Cool Britannia. You know, what are you going to choose? There's one that is emerged with far more credibility than, <laughs> than the other. So, so yeah, Britpop cinema it is. And it turns out that's not really a phrase. You know, the book, the title of the book is is the first instance of that being a, a, a subset. So I'm excited to talk about it. I think it works really well. So I, I, I do as well, Matt. Now, one of the things that I thought when I first encountered the the book on Twitter was exactly that, that I hadn't heard that phrase before. And I initially thought, oh, I wonder if this is going to be about those times when Britpop bands have, you know, had long form videos, maybe, you know, star shaped or supersonic, um, or even those things where Britpop people have popped up in films like Antonia Bird's Face, which I I think we'll probably mention later on. Um, And I was really excited to see that it's not that, that instead it's it's a look back over that period and that kind of post-Britpop period and bringing in a lot of, as you rightly described, really exciting British films. So, shall we tackle the first couple of films that, that I've selected from the book? Yeah, go on. All right. Well, let's start on slightly firmer ground um, with uh, Shallow Grave. I'm not ashamed. I've known love. I've known rejection. I'm not afraid to declare my feelings. Take trust, for instance, or friendship. These are the important things in life. These are the things that matter, that help you on your way. If you can't trust your friends, well, what then? What then? This could have been any city. They're all the same. Why why don't you maybe say something about Shallow Grave? Well, I mean, firstly, it's it, I love that film. I remember seeing it on video when it first came out. It would have been 14, 15. And um, at the time, it felt like a breath of fresh air. But actually, looking back, there's just not one aspect that, that's dated. It's such a statement of intent. I, I spoke to um, the filmmakers, particularly Andrew McDonald, and he was saying how they were all in their 30s or I think maybe late 20s for some of them. Anyway, certainly they were youngish men and they've been given a million pounds to go away and make their own movie by film four. And that they were, you know, excited and full of it, literally full of it, full of sort of arrogance and confidence. And what emerged is really something actually that that many people that had made many films before that wouldn't have come up with something that polished. And it absolutely stands up to this day. It's it's really, really great fun. It's really well written. It's really well acted. There's a beautiful sense it could just be a sort of, you know, one of those things which just ticks along. But Danny Ball brings this amazing visual flair to it. And, um, yeah, it really stands up, actually. So that's the first, one of the first kind of exciting Indigenous British films of the, of the 90s that I focus on. And um, yeah, I think looking back at it, you can absolutely see why it probably deserves more credit than it gets, actually. I would, I would agree with that, Matt. And I think what's interesting for me about Shallow Grave is the, the, the tonal aspects that it... Yeah starts off almost like a kind of comedy you've yeah. got this business with them selecting a, a new flatmate where you know colin mccready for example is one of the first people <laughs> they interview yeah. he's, he's sitting on that sofa and he just looks you know he's all kind of balled up and tight and nervous and they're just the, the three of them you know you and mcgregor and uh, chris Eccleston, they're, they're kind of toying with him and playing with him and it's just so wonderfully perfect and then almost from the moment that 
Keith Allen enters the, the flat that they're trying to rent the room out, the whole thing just shifts. It's, it's as if somebody has literally pulled something out from underneath you and you're plunged into this incredibly bleak, dark... I guess there are Hitchcockian elements in it as well, but it's a really it becomes a very dark and unpleasant film. But one of the things it does really well, actually, and Danny Boyle does this brilliantly, is that even while things are getting, you know, they're dismembering corpses, they're falling apart, they're stabbing <laughs> each other, you know, spoilers, but it, obviously it doesn't end well for anyone. Even at that point, there's still a brilliant sort of black humour to the point where after it's finished, there's a freeze frame to the group the three of them are back in happy times and it's I think it's Andy Williams it's happy heart starts playing Right. You realise that, that you, although you've seen these, this awful thing, you still had a really great time. And, uh, <laughs> like Danny Boyle does that so well. It allows you to show things that are really dark and sort of true seeming at the same time as as not bringing you down. You know, it's like giving you a really good time. Like it's like a, it's a blast. That film is, is actually great fun, even though when you describe it, it sounds, it sounds like the worst night out ever. And what, what do you think about the role of... Film four. I guess film four were a relatively new concern at that point. And the British film industry, would it be fair to say it hadn't exactly covered itself in glory through the through the eighties? You know, it was kind of in the doldrums. Funding's been withdrawn all over the place. So, how important were film four in this kind of renaissance in British cinema at that point? Well, I mean, very, very important. They were there's basically the two broadcasters, you know, BBC Films and uh, Film Four, the only people who had any kind of after the eighties had been a doldrums. The only people who had any kind of money to to do anything experimental, um, and so Film Four in particular, actually, you know, did do things like giving a million pounds to Danny Boyle, who hadn't ever made a film, and sort of trusted some filmmakers to do some. They were always about adult content. And then what that, the result of that was, they had a hand in lots of the, the best films of that era. The result of it was we got a sort of adult indie cinema, very, very British, and at the same time, you know, kind of dark and exciting that you probably wouldn't have got through a more conservative uh, means. So, yeah, there are fingerprints all over this stuff. And actually, they still are. They still, every time you, know, you see a Shane Meadows film or what have you, it's always a film for connection somewhere. They're a big part of all of this. Right, now... We have to move on to potentially slightly uh, rockier ground. Okay. So, yeah. um, and, and I should say in advance of this, I know that I'm a lone voice here. I un- I understand that what I'm about to say is heresy. Uh, that that lots of people who listen to my podcast and who read the site are, you know, in complete disagreement with me and will be in complete unison with you. But I don't like train spotting. Now, is that you? When you say don't like, is that you personally don't like it, you know, fine. Or is it that you actually don't think that it's a good film, which I find a little bit harder to, to take on? Uh, okay, so both. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I mean, it, it is important to, to point out that my not thinking it's a very good film is based on a much more rudimentary, basic level of film knowledge. So, so I get that. And I think a lot of my criticisms are coming from a place of, at best, being ill-informed and, and at worst, just being ignorant about 
you know, the, the, the truth of these things. So I, I think one of my big problems with, with train spotting is I don't think that it's aged particularly well. I, I, th- I think if you go back and look at it now, it looks like a film of its time. And you, you, you could say that about something like, for example, The Exorcist, right? All of the special effects look really dated. And if you sat in an audience with a group of young people now, they would laugh at the projectile vomiting and the head spinning and what have you. But I think that that film maintains its power and its ability to shock in a way that Trainspotting doesn't. And I think that's because actually it's very difficult to care about anybody in the film. I, I, I don't think there's a single person in the film who has a single redeeming quality. I, th- I think they're all horrible. Do you see the beast? Have you got it in your sights? Clear enough, Mitch Penny. This should present no significant problems. For a vegetarian, Rents, you're a fucking evil shot. Right. I suppose you want me to, to repudiate that in some way, but I you would argue that, that, I mean, obviously, you're right, no, none of them particularly nice people. I feel something for Spud every time I see him on screen, actually, because it's such a lovely performance from you and Remner. But I'd almost argue that that's not that big a deal, that this is a kind of like a, a black-hearted, black-humoured, like it's a blast. That That's the pace that it starts with, the, the speed and the sort of elegance with which we're introduced to all aspects of their life, which are awful, but, you know, are convincing, they are entertaining, they are in places funny. I don't know how much we have to think anyone's a good person. I mean, you, you know, it ends with the hero ripping off his friends and walking off into the sunset smiling. It's not about good people, but I don't think that necessarily is is a... A problem. I mean, they've obviously thought about that. It's not an accident. Um, yeah, so that doesn't—that isn't a problem for me. Well, that's yeah. I—I I, I would accept that. I—I I wonder. There might be a tiny little bit of me, Mark, that, that is being that kid in the common room, yeah, who's who's deliberately not liking the thing that everybody else likes because that's easier than trying to find your own personality. So in place of a personality, I'm saying that I don't like train spotting. But I think that there are other things that bother me about it. I don't like, I'm, I'm kind of going to repeat myself here, but Begbie I've got a big problem with, for example. I think Begbie is meant to be this genuinely terrifying, you know, violent, evil kind of character. But comparison to somebody like, I don't know, Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, say. Right. He's so one-dimensional. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe maybe that's part of my problem. That they they are all a little bit one-dimensional. They're all a little bit of a caricature. But then maybe you're right. Maybe that's a, a deliberate choice in order right. to allow the film to go along at the pace that it goes at. I think we could look at that the other way. You're right. I, th- I think the, the secondary characters are slightly caricatured. But I think if they weren't, you'd be in really grim sort of realist territory. If we actually saw an actual Begbie. Um, It'd be sort of unwatchably bleak. And as it is, because he's turned up to 11, you can laugh every now and then. I still find him scary. I still think it's a really great performance. But I think um, Renton is, is presented very, very straight. And I think his friends are sort of slightly like a rogues gallery. They are slightly cartoonified. And that means that it's possible to kind of to enjoy the black humour of it without just despairing at how dark the thing is we're watching so i think that's on purpose and i think that works obviously if it doesn't work for you you know that that's fine but um yeah that works for me i actually think one of the problems with the the sequel is that 
the, the secondary characters were all made equal with Renton. And so they were no longer cartoons, but they were all, neither were they proper people. So it didn't quite, they didn't feel fully fleshed out there, but they did for me in the original film. So Yeah, I, I mean, it'd be a, a terrible thing if we all agreed on all of these things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it did have a great poster. It did have a great poster. <laughs> That also, the poster is not just a work. It doesn't just look cool. It's an absolute work of genius in that it sells you. It says, these guys are so much fun. You're going to have a great time. Look, the coolest boy band you've never met. And you're like, really? Because he's a junkie that's just climbed out of a toilet. This guy would beat you up as soon as look at you. But they made it look like you wanted to be in their gang, which obviously no one in their right mind would want to be in their, right gang, in their gang. So, I mean, to me, that, that poster is a work of genius. It says that like, you are going to have such a great time with these crazy guys. And obviously, that's insane. If you've read the book, you'd run a mile from these people, you know? Well, and there's also that business of the fact that there is movement in the poster as well, which which I think, you know, listen to you talking about the, the pace of the film and yeah. how quickly it gallops along. I'm slightly persuaded. We can, so agree, we... It's a, we can agree it's a great poster. Yeah, it's a great poster, and there are moments on the soundtrack that are fantastic as well. Now, one of the other films that, that crops up, uh, I think, within a chapter or two uh, of, of Shallow Grave and Train Spotting, is a film that I, I wonder if it has the same kind of audience as, as either of those two films, or even if it has the kind of audience of any of the other films in, in the book. And that's brassed off a, a very, I mean, uniquely British film about a uniquely British story, which is also utterly universal for anybody who you know, has grown up in a working class environment or anybody who has any sympathy for people on the fringes of society. Brastoff tells this story for people who don't know about a, a real life brass band, a colliery brass band in the north of England whose mine is under threat of closure and they have only the music. And my feelings are very clear on this, actually, Mark. I think that if you want the great Britpop cinema soundtrack, it's not train spotting, it's Brastoff. I think the Brastoff soundtrack... Is, is a soundtrack that will reduce you to tears and also lift you closer to heaven than, than anything else will do. I'm a bit wobbly still. Don't you fret, pet. Wobbly be too good for this lot. Andy Lardy, you with us? All right, lads. Rodrigo's Concerto, Doris Juice. And I think the film itself is just so perfect in so many ways. So many great characters, such a great story, wonderful music, a lovely little love story in the middle of it. And interestingly, it's the third film that we've talked about, and it's the third film that features you and McGregor. Yeah, I mean, obviously, he's, he's, he was everywhere at that time. 
Um, I mean, this is a sort of uh, less Ewan McGregor than some of the other films. He's a bit more part of an ensemble in this, isn't he? Yeah. Um, and Mark Herman, um, the writer-director, spoke, was very kind and, and uh, is featured in the book, uh, features in the book, giving us some really lovely and not so lovely behind-the-scenes stories of a um, yeah, really difficult and interesting film. It's, it's a very challenging film in, in lots of ways, isn't it, Matt? I mean, there, there are things that happen in the film that are really shocking and, and really upsetting. There's a, there's a great performance from uh, Stephen Tomkinson. Yes. Who plays Pete Postlethwaite's son. Um, so Pete Postlethwaite is the, the man who kind of leads the, 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 the village brass band. He can't see past anything other than music. I think he, he constantly, almost like a catchphrase, is talking about it's music that matters. Yeah. And Stephen Tomkinson plays his son, who, in order to fill in the gaps in the family income, turns to being a children's entertainer, which provides you with this incredible moment where he returns home. Do you know the scene I'm going to talk about? He returns home from doing a children's party, dressed in his clown costume, to find bailiffs empty in his house. Yeah. And it's just heartbreaking to watch this man, this you know man who has a wife and children and his job is on the line and he's standing there in this ridiculous costume, desperately trying to hold both his physical home and his emotional home together. And, and the film is chock full of moments like that. Yes, I mean, one of the things that's so powerful about it is that it's a true story. I mean, it turns out that Mark Herman wrote the story and then later on realised that it had almost exactly happened the way he described wow. it so it's, it's the other way around he says no one believes him but it's true i believe him but i mean he even says that himself you know this sounds crazy but it's actually true i wrote a, a story of a brass band as you know uh, succeeding as the, the pit closes around it and then later found out that that's exactly what happened um and yeah all of that stuff is so so poignant and so uh, real and so happening there one of the things i mean it's an outlier i'd say in in the book because it's actually quite traditionally made it doesn't have yeah. that kind of formal innovation that that Danny Boyle does or even that you know Lockstock even some of the films after that so it's not cool no. but it is powerful and it is funny it's really well acted um there's a few things I have a problem with in it but it, it yeah it's a film that punches above its weight and um and tells a sort of very unfashionable story really honestly um so yeah so I can I can see why you've got a lot of time for it yeah I, I think I, I... I saw it at a particular time in my life as well, and I wonder if, as with all of these things, I guess, it's it's when things grab you and when things hit you. I think I was probably particularly political at that point as well. What age are you, Paul? Can I ask what age you are? I'm 45. Right. So this came out when? 1996. Yeah, so I was 21. And at university and involved in student politics yeah, cool. and you know it's we're still a year away from the new labor yeah. revolution we're still in the grip of that dying embers of that tory government and I, that may well color the the way that i view it but I, I think it's one of those films that crops up on film four every now and then i wonder how many people listening have actually seen it i think people should see it i think i think it's a really yeah it's a lovely film you're right it's not it's not lock stock. It's not sexy beast. It's not this is England, you know. But it's a very. I, I was going to say it's a very nice film, but that makes it sound like it's a cold play song. It, it's it's a very tender and and well intentioned film. I yeah, think it is very well intentioned. And um, speaking to Mark, you, that comes across in spades. And actually, all the story you read Pete Postlethwaite's autobiography about filming 
filming the book and um he's got lots of great stories about being in the pub with the local guys and sort of slowly becoming part of the community and realizing what they'd lost it's very 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 angry at, at thatcher i mean the italian title is something like grazie signor thatcher signora thatcher thanks mr <laughs> thatcher so i mean that's how much it wears its politics on its sleeve and i guess that's kind of rare actually so there is yeah there is something about it um definitely worth a look for people that haven't seen it i think so i think so and i, I actually don't trust people who aren't at least brought to the brink of tears with Pete Postlethwaite's uh, speech at the end of the film. There's, for people, again, who haven't seen it, there's a, a speech that Pete Postlethwaite gives from inside the environs of the Royal Albert Hall. And uh, knowing what you've just said about how he became involved in that community, you now know that actually he probably wasn't acting. He was probably using the, the speech in the film as a platform for his own politics. This band behind me will tell you that that trophy means more to me than out else in the old world. But they'd be wrong. Truth is, I thought it mattered. I thought that music mattered. But does it bollocks? Not compared to how people matter. Us winning this trophy won't mean bugger all to most people. But us refusing it, like what we're going to do now, well, then it becomes news, doesn't it? Because over the last 10 years, this bloody government has systematically destroyed an entire industry. Our industry. And not just our industry. Our communities, our homes, our lives. And, of course, that speech was sampled by a famous band of the era, Chumbawamba. Oh, good grief. <laughs> back, to the day, back to the day there you go so now matt there's a, a section in the book again i think that we're, we're at least a, a chapter or two away from this in the book but you group together some of the gangster films from the period and the kind of i guess an unholy trinity in in many ways given how bleak some of these films are so we have obviously lock stock and two smoking barrels gangster number one and sexy beast i would like to start if if you don't mind with the, the second on that list and that's gangster number one because that's a film that i have a lot of time for i find it a very a very unsettling experience to watch it um and I, I don't think that's just because it's so violent but there is something in the the way in which the film is put together the way that the narrative is structured the way that things are presented on screen that is it's almost like that canted angle, right? You know, if you, if you want to create a sense of disturbance on screen, you, you tilt the camera. It seems to me that the, if not the camera, that almost everything at all times in Gangster Number One is tilted. But it's a fantastic gangster movie. Who is it? It's a big bad wolf. Oh, it's you. Oh, I was just, I was just making some sweet tea. Would you like a cup? Do you take sugar? What's, what's that? There. That's my favourite axe, Eddie. For people that haven't seen it, it concerns uh, Paul Bettany as a young gangster pretender growing up and taking over the, the throne in London. And then Malcolm McDowell plays the, uh, the elder version of him. And um, I agree with you. I think all of the earlier scenes with Paul Bettany, it's very rare that we were basically our hero is a psychopath and not in a fun way or an exciting way. I mean, he's a gangster, but he's also, he's missing all of the things that we, we expect our heroes to have. And he's violent and he's completely without compunction. And actually that is really disturbing to see because when it 
you know, when those things come out, they are really shocking. There's a very, very brutal murder scene sort of shot from the victim's point of view and his point of view. And it, it's, it's one of the most powerful scenes of the whole era, actually. I, 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 in fact, it's so powerful that the film almost can't come back from that scene. But um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting film. Um, I spoke to Paul McGuigan, the director, and he said he's a Glaswegian. He said that um, he'd grown up around a lot of violence. He'd lived in a sort of um, industrial areas and had, had seen this stuff and that he'd seen some guy get hit in the head with an axe and he'll never forget the sound of it. And he wanted to kind of keep put that violence into this film. And, you know, I think he succeeds. I think it does feel really, really hard to watch. It is it's a very difficult watch and it's it's carried along by those two performances, I guess, by Paul Bettany. And of course, it's, it's a really interesting thing that they're neither Bettany as the young gangster or Malcolm McDowell as Gangster 55, I think that's what he's credited as. Neither one of them actually has a name. Right? They're, right. He's, he's just the gangster, um, which adds another layer to, to what's going on. But there's also other really great performances in there, particularly for me, David Thewlis. Yeah. I think David Lewis is fantastic in it. Um, he's just such a such a presence on screen whenever he appears in anything. David Lewis and and like Paul Bettany in this, there is something almost hypnotic about him when he's on screen. You you genuinely can't take yourself away from it. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on in that film. There's a lot of really talented people, and I think a lot of people that were sort of considered B or C list, you know, it was, it was a young director, Bettany wasn't big at that point, you know, and, and him and Thewlis, st- they're still not massive. They're still respected more than they are sort of, you know, red carpet famous. But the, what that actually means is that there's loads and loads of talented people in it. So it's one of those films that really punches above its weight. And Malcolm McDowell, I mean, what, what is that to say about Malcolm McDowell? I mean, he's just... I, I love, I absolutely love the guy. He's incredible, right? I mean, he's just, again, I mean, it's that thing of when he's on screen, there are certain actors that can be in very, very bad films and they are never bad. Right, so that's a very different type of gangster than uh, what we get in Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. Right, let's sort the buyers from the spires, the needy from the greedy, and those who trust me from the ones who don't. Because if you can't see value here today, you're not up here shopping, you're up here shoplifting. You see these goods, never seen daylight, moonlight, Israelite, funny by the gaslight. Take a bag, come on, take a bag. I took a bag home last night, gives me a lot more than £10, I can tell you. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, Lock, Stock and Two Spoken Barrels is very knockabout. And, um, you know, in line with sort of, you know, in that sense, it really does feel like a Britpop film. It's all sort of knockabout. It's all good larks. And um, yeah, a lot of people love it. I find that aspect of it a little bit irritating. And I sort of feel that it takes us to places. It's quite violent. It's really some of the things that happen are, are quite awful and then it's all just laughed off so i find it a little bit i find it a problematic film it's very easy to laugh off some of the things that happen in lockstock when you haven't lived with that 
kind of violence. And that, I think, is what sets him apart from Paul McGuigan. Paul McGuigan, you know, knowing that he grew up in Glasgow, my mum grew up in Glasgow in the 60s and was involved in the gang culture there. Yeah. And, you know, people carrying axes and samurai swords and all sorts of other weapons was just commonplace. And that level of violence in cities like Glasgow is very, very real. And it's it's not something that people from that background can laugh off in the same way. And so for me, the, the joy of Lockstock is how much fun it is. There are some great performances in there. Um, there's a young guy called Jason Statham in there. I don't know whatever happened to him. I think, I mean, what I would say is that the thing the film does really well is that all of the four leads have got a lot of charisma. So Jason Fleming and Dexter Fletcher, and Nick Moran, Jason Statham. And together... It's a really great time. It's a really great time hanging out with them. I actually like the scenes the most where they're just getting drunk and yeah. not not in some sort of convoluted gangster plot or hurting people or watching people getting hurt. I actually just think there's so much, you know, they're like a kind of boy band. There's so much charisma in, uh, between them that actually it's just really fun watching them getting drunk and playing cards. So that's the stuff I like out of that. I think that's because they're so well cast, those axes. And yeah, I have a bit of a problem with with the the real violent stuff. I think you're right. I think if you'd seen any of that stuff for real, you couldn't make that film. Right now, the third the third gangster film here is Sexy Beast. Not this fucking time. No, 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 not this fucking time. No fucking way. No fucking way. No fucking way. No fucking way. You made me look a right cunt. Which again features some real. You know, heavyweights of of British film. You've got Ray Winston, Ben Kingsley, Ian McShane. It's you know it doesn't get much bigger than that. And it's a another film that I guess deals with that side of life, that that culture, that subculture of you know gangsters and gangland living, and yet does something very unusual and very different with it. It's a really great film. That's one of the, the best of the era for me. Like it's right up there with um with the train spottings and the, you know and what have you. I think it does something really great. Is that it's it both does a really good job of being kind of funny and knock about and you know you're enjoying yourself at the same time as some of it being really serious, really counting. You know mainly the stuff that Ben Ben Kingsley bring there brings there. And so you flip from sort of really enjoying yourself and having a great time to suddenly thinking, oh shit, someone's really going to get hurt. This is serious. And then. But maintaining that tone back and forth, I think Danny Ball does that really well. And I think Jonathan Glazer does that really well in Sexy Beast. I think it's a serious film that's also lots of fun, which is really hard to do. Yeah, I, I, that's that's it. And I, I, when you talk about Ben Kingsley as, as Don Logan, I mean, he's one of the great screen sociopaths, right? Yeah. I mean, d- d- at no point, you can see that people on screen as well as people in the, the cinema or people sitting at home watching it, you immediately feel yourself beginning to tense up. Yeah. Just, just the way that he looks and the way that he carries himself, there's this constant feeling that actually at any point something really, really bad could happen. And I, when I watch Ray Winston, who's known for you know playing a, a hard man himself on screen, either Ray Winston is given the performance of a lifetime or actually he is reacting to whatever energy Ben Kingsley has given off because he genuinely looks uncomfortable sometimes. Everyone feels uncomfortable with them. And you're right, the moment he's on screen, you feel uncomfortable. There's a great, the producer tells a great story. He said that um, Jeremy Thomas, the producer, he said, he went, uh, 
to the lunch hall on Ben Kingsley's first day and that all of the crew were down one end eating and Ben Kingsley was down the other and they were, just, they were just even you know in his little short short sleeve shirt and that sort of properly shaved head even then even when they weren't acting everyone was terrified of him which is, is such a great detail that's fantastic mm. right so that I guess when when did that come out like when that, when sex abuse is that 2000 I think it's two. 2000, 2001, I should know this. Stuff, yeah, so that's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of I guess, what we would call post-Britpop. If we think about Britpop being that kind of period of the kind of mid-90s, we're kind of dipping our toe out of that kind of peak of the 90s for British popular culture, which then brings us to the, the final two films that I'd like to talk with you about tonight. Yeah. And the, the first of those, I guess, is the most... If we, if we use the term Britpop to refer it back to the, the musical scene for a second, I guess this is kind of a post-Britpop film that tells a pre-Britpop story. Um, nice. And that's 24-hour party people. Absolutely. I mean, but I think one of the things, one of the, I mean, it's included in the book and there's some amazing stories about how that was made. But one of the things about the Britpop era is that people were looking back to the 70s they're looking back to the kinks and to the things that had come beforehand and sort of, you know, happily half inching that stuff. And so it makes perfect sense for a turn of the millennium film to look back at the beginnings of the Manchester scene because it's such an amazing story. And uh, the filmmakers were from Manchester, you know, so everyone, you know, there's reasons, reasons for it. But um, I think that's a film that doesn't get enough credit, actually. I think it's it, it was, it's a really, really stands up. There's all of the British indie acting talent is in it. All of the British Manchester music talent is in it. And it's a really, really good, fun film. It is a good fun film, and you're right to point out that actually there's a lot of the music talent in there. You know, Tony Wilson obviously makes a sort of cameo appearance. Howard DeVoto, I think, is in there. Paul yeah. Ryder's in there. Clint Boone. Yeah. Uh, Marky Smith, Smith pops up. Dave Haslam. Um, and, oh, um, I'm fairly sure Vinnie Riley makes an appearance at one point. Um, yeah. Rowetta's um, in, um, yeah. in there, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's great. And then, as you say, there's this kind of British indie acting talent. Paddy Considine's in there, John Thompson. John Sim. Paul Popperwell, John Sim. It's so many good thing. people. Um, and bizarrely, Dave Gorman is John the Postman, um, yeah. which is a very odd detail. Simon Pegg, Simon Pegg's in there. Simon Pegg is in there, yeah, you're right. For like so it's, one scene, yeah. That's right. I mean, it's, it's a, an incredible kind of melding coming together of all these aspects of British kind of fringe culture to make I'm with you I think it's a film that gets a hard time and I can't I'm not really sure why that is there are, there are some things that you can kind of see why people would maybe you know have a, a bit of an issue with it you know if we go back to one of the, the first films if not the first film in your book it's Four Weddings mm -hmm. I can see why some people are a bit dismissive of it you know some of the performances are a bit wooden or whatever it's a bit too Notting Hill isn't it yes but, but I, I happen to love it by the way but here with 24 hour party people I don't get it I, I don't know why it's not much more kind of revered I don't know why it doesn't have a, a place if not at the top table then certainly you know close to the top table such a great story so many great characters so many great scenes I don't know Tony Wilson talking to you know God up on the, the, the roof of the building all this kind of stuff
Tony, you did a good job. Basically, you are right. Sean is the greatest poet since Yeats. This is amazing. Can I have it in writing? It is already written in the sinews of history and the hearts of men. It's a pity you didn't sign the Smiths, but you were right about Mick Hucknall. His music's rubbish and it's a ginger. Vinnie Riley, by the way, is way overdue a revival. You might think about the greatest hits. It's a good idea. It's good music to chill out to. Yeah, you're right. I usually am. I just think it's great fun. Great fun. I think, I mean, it's actually the, re the reason why it's not so well-known is just a depressingly uh, boring one in that um, Polygram Entertainment that um, distributed Shallow Grave, distributed Trainspotting, distributed Lockstock, distributed most of these films, uh, had gone had been sold by that point, and Channel 4 films had gone into downturn at the turn of the millennium. And so these kind of, you know, slightly out there, slightly niche films like that all of a sudden didn't have the backers that they would have had two or three years ago. Um, that's how the filmmakers say as well. Like they love it and they're like, you know, if it had been a few years earlier, we would have, it would have made a difference. So I think it could just be one of those things, you know, that the people that, that, that back these kind of films were no longer operating, which is really tough. Um, it's know. very sad. Yeah. Well, let's turn our attention now to the, the final film that I want to talk to you about. And it's, I think, I mean, these things are so silly, aren't they? Having sort of top tens, top five. <laughs> but I, I, I think I think there are a couple of films that would always feature in any top ten list of films for me, um, you know, if I was being really honest. And this next film, This Is England, would be one of them. Um, I, I went to see This Is England when it was at the cinema uh, 14 times. One, two, three. Are you working, Kim? Did you not miss Yeah, yeah, fourteen times. Yeah, fucking hell. Should should we cut that out of this? <laughs> that's, that's just that's just. I love the commitment. Like it's a it's a masterpiece. It's a great film. Fourteen times. That is fourteen amazing. times. And I, I I can't tell you how many times I've watched it since. Yeah. Um. The. I guess the question then is why? Why did I see it fourteen times? So I went to see it first just because there were skinheads in it and because I liked the soundtrack, and then I found myself. Going back, it was almost like a, a sort of comfort blanket. When when was this released, Matt? Are we saying 2004? Two, so 2006, seven, 2006. depending on, depending on ah. whether it's the Cannes Film Festival or whether it was in the UK. So 2007 for a normal punter. Right. Well, so in, in that case, I know exactly what was going on. So I was in a relationship at that point, um, and that relationship was fracturing in a very real way i think i found some kind of emotional solace in the relationships that were being presented in the film these relationships seemed so real they seemed so yeah. strong they seemed rooted in some kind of genuine emotional connection with one another I, I think maybe that that explains it 
Um, so there was a, a, a multitude of things going on that, that drew me to it. But I, I think it stands the test of time. I, I think it, it remains an incredible film. And it's not a film about skinheads. It's not a film about Hello? any of that stuff. It's a film about men and men's relationships with one another, with women, and the way in which they assert that kind of masculinity. Or am I being too pretentious? No, I mean, there's all these things that you can read into it because it's it's just a really powerful piece of work and Shane knows what he's talking about. And all those actors have been, he's got a wonderful sort of improvisational technique. So some of those relationships you're seeing, you are glimpsing, you know, actors that have really bonded. They've not just, you know, been shipped in to shoot their scenes for that day. And it's 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 a really powerful piece of work. It's a coming of age film. It speaks about the the skinhead movement, which was before my time, but it speaks. It seems very convincing, and Shane Miller said he was like a shit skinhead when he was growing up. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's a hell of a film, and yeah, it does stand. It absolutely does stand the test. And the soundtrack's amazing, uh, performances. I think proof of why how much it stands the test of time is is that they continued into TV shows, the TV series, which are also brilliant. But there was no necessarily it wasn't there was more story to tell it's just that we wanted to spend more time with those characters and see what happened to them you know what is it then about Shane Meadows that you I mean you've just said he's a big hero of yours Matt what is it about Shane Meadows and his films that that appeals to you well I mean so the big one for me is Dead Man's Shoes Um, but there's there's similarities right there across the board obviously all the work of the same person um, there's, I could give you lots of reasons. I love the music. I think the performances are great, all that stuff. But, but actually, the reason that I love Dead Man Shoes is that I think it expresses very, very directly a, a propensity to for violence that I think most young men and men feel, and I certainly felt. Um, not that I would ever have done anything about it, but it expressed that so purely that it was like it was like a drop of the hard stuff, you know, like it was completely undiluted. And I think this, uh, this is England is a more grown up film, but I think there's still that there. I think, you know, um, Sean is angry and upset and he wants to kick out, he wants to hurt people. And Combo is obviously the, 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 the extreme example of that. Someone, you know, an angry little boy in a man's body that wants to cause someone pain. And I think, tragically, everyone understands that feeling. It's just that it's, they don't I think people loved taxi driver for the same reason lots of teenagers and growing up that really struck with people and i think exactly those reasons they show you someone disaffected doing things that you would never actually do but that you have you have those feelings and i think they express them very very elegantly almost and certainly powerfully i remember being like absolutely speechless at the end of dead man's shoes and still to this day when i see it i feel it's very very upsetting to watch and, um, I yeah. think there's some there's something in Dead Man's Shoes. That, for me, there's two types of violence in the film. There's the violence of the, the people who have so destroyed the life of Paddy Constantine and his family. Yeah. That kind of awful, seedy, you know, 90s loaded lad culture, misogynistic, yeah. misanthropic violence, you know, visiting harm and unpleasant and unhappiness on other people in order to validate their own existence. And then you have Paddy Constantine, who's almost like Jesus chasing the moneylenders out of the temple. Right? Well, his, his, his violence is born out of a righteous desire to avenge terrible, terrible wrongs. It's, it's so interesting the way that those two things, they're both violent, and yet one you are rooting for and one you are terrified of. And I'm not terrified of Paddy in the film. It's very cleverly done because you spend right up until the last few minutes 
um, completely on Paddy's side and thinking he's, you know, he's this is an extreme reaction, but he's doing what he believes, you know, he's 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 an avenging angel. And then actually, as it becomes apparent at the very end, he sort of has a moment of clarity and realizes that he's the monster. And you realize that actually what he's done is almost as monstrous as the awful bullying more day-to-day violence of of the gang and you're presented with two horrible extremes two kind of two ways in which violence makes us all worse and um yeah that's a very a very sophisticated message to get across in a film that's also exciting and funny and moving yeah I'm a massive fan of those two I'm a bit less close to Romeo Brass and 24-7 is very impressive but um yeah those two in particular will always will always stay with me I'm really really powerful and it's one of those things if you get home from the pub and dead man's shoes is on you better know that you are watching until the last minute yeah you're you not turning cannot, it off you cannot turn it off i feel the same about train spotting for the same about sexy beast if you ever get home halfway through those films you are watching to the end <laughs> I think I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, well, look, Matt, I, I really appreciate your, your time this evening. The the book, um, the, the parts that I have read is fantastic. It's so well written. You can absolutely feel uh, and almost taste the passion uh, that you have for the the films that you're talking about. It, it's a terrific read. It's and it it's an interesting read in so many ways because it doesn't read like a set of film essays it, there is there is a, a a narrative almost that runs through it and there's an element of storytelling that runs through it which lends it a kind of cinematic quality of its of its own so if, if people are maybe thinking that well this is a book about film it's going to be some kind of academic thing clearly you know a lot about film but the book itself is just so well written uh, and I, I've, I've really enjoyed it so far and uh, I, I wish you every success with it Thank you. That's really nice of you to say. And actually, it really means a lot to hear that coming from from a fan and someone who knows their stuff. So thank you. Make a good 